The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, everyone. Um, you know, last week, uh, I, t- I introduced the topic that we're going to talk about again tonight, which is the three primary trainings that take place in Buddhism. The trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And what we do is train ourselves in these three ways of being in the world. And yeah, I'm particularly interested in the subject of ethics. So that's what we're going to continue talking about tonight. Because what we did last week was, was talk a little bit about seeing things as they really are, which is kind of the starting point for leading into insight in our lives. And the object here is not so much to become a better person as to be free of suffering. So we don't lose sight of, of the fundamental thing, which is the, the Four Noble Truths, where there is suffering in the world. We know that suffering is caused by wanting things to be different than they are. That there can be an end to suffering, And the Eightfold Path, which is, how do you put an end to suffering? So it's actually very simple. Very simple. You do good, avoid evil, and see things as they are. Now, unfortunately, that turns out to be a little harder (laughs) than than the length of time it takes to just say that. But what we're going to do is explore... How, that that, how that's possible. How can we become free of suffering? So everything that I have to say about ethics is not about good and bad. It's about how do we free ourselves from suffering. Okay? Real simple stuff. We're going to be kind to ourselves. Okay. So when we go through the Eightfold Path, it's kind of divided into these three ways of training. So to begin with, if we talk about ethics, we're talking about right speech, right action, right livelihood. This is how we are in the world, how we are in relation to other people. This is, this is the world of ethics. Samadhi or meditation, this is about concentration, mindfulness, slowing the mind down so that we can actually see how the mind behaves. It's has the aspect of investigation and awareness. And finally, wisdom. Right view, right intention. And this is the place where we come up with really understanding what's going on in the world. Now, these divisions are really for the sake of clarity. They're, they're, not, they're not sacred in any way. After all, intention has a lot to do with action. They're not really separate. Speech is inseparable from view. Effort is part of concentration. Mindfulness is inherent in all of it. So there's nothing about this that is obscure. Everything is kind of interrelated. But what we want to do is really focus on our experience so that we're not living up here in our heads. It isn't about knowing 
It's about how we are. It's a way of being in the world that's going to allow us to be free. So there are kind of three levels of meaning. Okay? There's uh, inner virtue, you know, where we kind of formulate our intention. This is how I want to be. And then there is action in the world, what we do with that intention. And then there's a kind of systematic way of following that ethical decision and intention. Okay? So if we want to look at all of this, we have to realize that it's really about harmonizing the way we are in the world with what we see. It's really about bringing it all together and not making it something other than what is true. So, when these are not in harmony, then we have regret, remorse, guilt. We feel bad about something that's happened. And what we really want to do is cultivate a sense of being at ease with how we are in the world. That's really the goal. We want to be at ease with the world in our interactions with people. So how do we do that? Sometimes we get hung up on this word right when we talk about right action. And there's this sense of righteousness, like there's a good way and a bad way, and I'm going to be on the good side, and all my enemies are on the bad side. But we really don't want to break the world up that way. We're not trying to find this is better than that. What we're really trying to do is make sure that our actions are in concert with things as they are. We're not so much about changing our behavior, but being aware of how we're relating to the world. So it's really the quality of mind that's important. And what happens is we can't really separate ethics from our meditation and wisdom practice. Because as we watch things arise, we can't help but become aware of their ethical content. It, it just, you can't help it. It just happens. So if I'm sitting and I become aware of anger, one of the immediate things that comes up when I'm angry is judgment about that anger. Either judgment of me, judgment of the person I'm angry with. There are all these external emotional things that happen around that anger. And so right away I start thinking about that's good, that's not good. All of those judgments come up and all of a sudden we're creating a lot of things around this anger. We can't really ignore it. So the object here is to figure out what's going on, find out what's really true. Maybe I'm angry because I'm actually afraid. And maybe I'm afraid because of something somebody said or something somebody did. And what I'm trying to do is be aware of that, okay? We want to be aware of that. So as you go along, what you discover when you start paying a lot of attention is that Anger is something that hurts. And I, I remember discovering that anger, my anger, hurt me. And that was really remarkable. That 
that when I was angry, it wasn't necessarily the other person who suffered from that anger, but I sure did. My stomach was in knots, my chest was tight, I had restriction all over my body, there was energy burning me up, and I started noticing all of that bodily feeling around anger and said, wow, this is really unpleasant. Why am I doing this? That's the place where it all interacts and we start paying attention to how that fits together. So if you remember last week, we talked about the Buddha's advice to his son, Rahula, on the subject of paying attention to your anger, your actions, before the action, during the action, and after the action. This three-part investigation of what's really going on comes out over and over again. So one of the ways that we talk about ethics in Buddhism is to talk about the five precepts. So in the five precepts, we list kind of the basic way that we want to interact with other people. And when we list these, we don't list them as uh, commandments or instructions. You know, you should be this way, you should not be this way. We really introduce them as, for the sake of training... I vow to refrain from killing. That doesn't sound so bad. For the sake of training, I vow not to harm other beings. The first one is really about non-harming. And in the end, all of them are about non-harming. All five. Non-harming. Non-harming. The second one is is not stealing, not taking what is not freely given. The third is to not speak falsely. The fourth is not to abuse my sexuality. And the fifth is not to engage in intoxication. So if we look at all of these, none of these is particularly surprising. But all of them have something to do with purifying the quality of our mind. They all have something to do with how we are in the world. So if I adopt a way of non-harming, what does that mean for me? How does that manifest itself? I have the intention. How does it show up in the world? And what are the consequences of that? So today, someone said to me, you know, there's, um, there's a new threat from Al-Qaeda. We're now three days away. Today is September 8th. We're three days away from the 10th anniversary of the falling of the the World Trade Center towers in New York City. And this trauma in the U.S. is really pretty great. Well, so now there's a new threat that on the anniversary of this, uh, there's going to be another major terrorism act. Now, I heard that, and I thought, well, that doesn't surprise me that there's a threat. You know, if, if all of us are remembering this anniversary, what does that mean? But the real question is, what does that arise? What does that cause to arise in your mind? Does it bring forth anger? Does it bring forth fear? Does it bring forth a desire for revenge? Does it bring forth curiosity? 
So if I'm interested in non-harming, how do I meet that piece of news? How do I feel about it? What is the, what is the internalization I have about it? And then what do I entertain in my head? What are the thoughts that I, I start cycling around? What we want to develop is the habit when we, that when we see something arise in, the, in our minds that is harmful, we're able to say, I don't want to live there. I don't want to live with that. I don't want to be that way. I'm going to let that feeling go. I'm not going to feed myself revenge fantasies. So it's not so much, if you do this, you will become that way. It's more, as you become this way, that's what you'll do. It's as if the ethical action arises out of the intentions that you develop through the practice. So I want to give you an example of that. And I'm going to read you a short piece from Naomi Shihab Nye. And this is called Someone I Love. Someone I love so much cut down my primrose patch. It looked like an oval of overgrown weeds to him in the front yard near the black mailbox on the post. He didn't know that for weeks I'd been carefully tending and watering it as a few primroses floated their pink heads above the green mass, unfurled their delicate bonnets. I'd been carefully waiting. With dozens of buds waiting to shine, we were on the brink. Everything popping open despite the headlines all sweet flower beings from under the ground, remembering what they were supposed to do. He mowed it down with the old push lawnmower. I was out of town. He didn't ask his father, who knew how precious it was to me. His father was in the back while this was happening and didn't see. There wasn't a second thought. Why would we have such a tall patch in the backyard? What does my mother do when she comes out here with the old shovel and bucket and the mysterious sacks of rose food and mulch poking around in the earth, trimming the clippers in her pocket, bending to the wild tangle of jasmine on the fence, the Dutchman's pipe, the happy oregano, the funny cacti crowding together in complicated profusion like a family? The miniature chilies, what does she do? Why is this here? He just cut it down. It wasn't easy. He must have pushed really hard to get it to go. When I stood outside in my nighty the next dreamy sweet morning at dawn after returning home on the midnight plane, watering my blue bonnets, snapdragons, butterfly bush lantana, wanting to feel the tired tied to earth again, as I always do when I get home, rooted in soil and stone and old caliche and bamboo and trees, a hundred years of memory in their trunks and bushes we didn't plant, and the healthy Esperanza ever losing her hope, and the banana palms just poking out their fine and gracious greeny when I saw what was gone, what wasn't there. Not there, 
impossible. I was so shocked, I let the hose run all over my bare feet. The cold sun of fury filled me. Sorrow rising and pouring into questions, who could do this? Why? How could they? How could anyone? I thought of the time my daddy came home to find every head cut off his giant sunflowers right after they had opened their faces to the sky. Only the empty stalks remaining, his disbelieving sorrow as he went up to his room, lay down on the bed, closed his eyes, and thought, I will not mention this. I am too sad to mention it. This is the pain of people everywhere. The pain this year deserves. But at breakfast, I went a little strange, like the lady down the street who shows up at people's doors with a snarling dog and a hammer in her pocket. I went wild and furious, and he swore they just looked like weeds to him. Why hadn't I warned him? Why did I only tell Dad? I pointed them out to you weeks ago, I said. He said, I don't remember flower things like that. And it was the season of blooming and understanding. It was the season of hiding from headlines, wondering what would it do if the whole house had been erased, or just the books and paintings, or what about the whole reckless garden? Or then it gets unthinkable, but we make ourselves think it now and then to stay human, the child's arms or legs, what would I do? If I did not love him, who would I become? If I did not love him, who would I become? I like this story. And the reason I like this story is it doesn't pretend to be anything it's not. She was furious. She was heartbroken. She'd been waiting for these primroses. And she realized she could get a little crazy. She could really get a little crazy over this. But her habit of loving her son allowed her to see that this was actually pretty crazy. She didn't have to be this. She didn't have to be angry. There were many worse things in the world. And her habit allowed her to come back. But also, in reflection, she realized that she could have lost it. She could have lost it. And how grateful she was that she loved him. Not grateful that he cut down her primroses. (laughs) It's the honesty of those feelings that I find most attractive. When we're talking about ethics, we're not talking about pretending that we're better than we are. We're talking about how to be in the world with things as they are. This really speaks to the habit of mind that is compassionate. And that's what we want to do. We investigate how things are, and then we cultivate the mind, the mind habit that allows us to meet the world in a compassionate way. That's the whole idea behind ethics in Buddhism. It isn't about right or wrong, good or bad. 
It's about maintaining a quality of mind that allows us to avoid suffering. So that ethics is really a kind of gift. It's a gift to you. It's a gift to the people that you interact with. That what you want to do is meet them in a way that is safe, that is kind, that is non-harming. I want to meet you in a way that does not harm you. One of the things that uh, we talked about last week was the fact that I had gotten into an argument with my brother and how disappointed I was in myself that I wasn't able to be there and not argue with him. But how painful it was for me to be in that situation and realizing that the, the emotional surge of that moment was so great that the only way I could keep from fighting with him was to leave. It was the truth of how it was. It isn't that I was a better or worse person for fighting with him. It was, I'm not going to continue to fight with him. I'm not going to live in a mind that is so clouded and so incapable of being present. It isn't about how good on any kind of scale It's about maintaining a quality of mind that allows us to be free of suffering. That's what we're looking for. So it's really a heightened awareness of what's happening. So when we notice something, we notice whether there is any greed, hatred, or delusion in the moment wanting things to be other. Either I want it to be this way or I don't want it to be that way or I'm so confused I don't know how it is. We look at that quality and then we look a little deeper and say, hmm, what else is here? Is there a strong form of hatefulness? Those dirty so-and-sos? Is there mild irritation? Oh! How could that guy cut me off like that? You know, what is the quality of mind? And in the noticing, maybe we can let go of that. Maybe we can let go of that itching that's keeping us uncomfortable. Maybe we can just, oh, okay, I see that. I don't want to live there. I don't want my mind to be that clouded. I don't want my mind to be that scattered. Because we keep remembering that what we're doing with ethics is solving a problem. And the problem is suffering. That's it. So what is it going to take to relieve the mind of that grasping, snarly feeling that we have? And encouraging the mind of openness and freedom and kindness. What do we have to do? So we just keep asking. We ask before, what is the intention? We ask in the action, what is the action? 
we ask in reflection, who is harmed? Am I harmed? Are you harmed? Is either of us harmed? If there is no harm, the action is fine. Do I benefit from this action? Do you benefit from this action? Do we both benefit from this action? I'll do this again. It isn't about good or bad. It's an unusual way of looking at ethics, actually. It's not about a set of imperatives. It's not about determining right or wrong. It's not about assigning blame. It's not about assigning praise. It's about being easy in the way we are in the world. So, there's a story about a a guy who goes to his teacher and he said, you know, I really want to be a generous person. But I just don't feel generous. And he said, who said anything about feeling? Just be generous. Oh. And that's what we mean by cultivating. It isn't that we're doing something wrong or we're doing something right. It's my intention is to be generous. Well, then fine, be generous. Just do it. Or just don't do it. So it's a way of inclining your mind toward something. I incline my mind toward generosity or away from harming. So let me give you an idea about how that might work. So suppose I decide I'm going to give money to, to, uh, uh, to care. I'm going to give a donation to care because I support what they do in the world. That's my intention. And then I, and that's good. This is good. This is a benefit. And then I give the money to care, to a care worker. And that's the action. And that's a beneficial action. And then the care worker takes that money and bribes a policeman. Uh oh. That's not so good. That's not my intention. My intention was not to bribe the policeman. That feels like something that's a bit more dishonest than I had in mind. My intention was of benefit. My action was of benefit. The consequence, the outcome, may not have been beneficial. So this wasn't about a good or bad thing. It's about looking at how all of it fits together. So maybe there's another example. Suppose you have... um, uh, Let's take something that that happens in, in many people's lives. You decide that you're going to do something for someone because they're in need and you really care about this person. So you're going to support them. And so you give them money. Let's, let's say there's a, a young man and uh, he's having trouble supporting his family. So you decide to give money to him for his children. Your intention is, is to support him and his children. You give the money... This is another thing. This is, this is a benefit to give the money. Suppose then he takes that money and he goes out and gets drunk. How many times are you going to do that? How many times are you going to take your good intention, your good action, and have the consequences be something 
that are not what you intended. That's interesting. That's something to consider. That's something to say, ah, how am I in the world? What's the net effect? And maybe it changes. You know, at, at this point, there's something in my life that I did an act of generosity for someone. And it's, you know, maybe it was the right thing at the time, but the consequences are very far from my intention. And now I'm having to untangle that. And it's very painful to decide, well, what is the generous thing to do? Is the generous thing to stop that? Or is the generous thing to continue that? And how do you determine whether it's compassionate or foolish or destructive? How do you make that decision? So the interesting thing about Buddhist ethics is because you don't get a this is good, that is bad answer, you actually have to make choices. You have both the freedom and the responsibility of the choices that you make. The freedom and the responsibility of the choices you make. Both things are there. So suppose you do something and you're not really very pleased with the outcome. (laughs) Or maybe you do something and you've got a really good intention. My intention is to help you. My intention is to help you be more attractive. I think that that pair of pants really makes your butt look big. (laughs) Now, the question is, was that a good thing to say or a not-so-good thing to say? Was it beneficial or not beneficial? Was it kind? Did it need to be said? Maybe there was another way. There are many, many examples from the trivial to the really heartbreaking. Ways of making choices about how we are in the world. So... It's a discipline. There are no easy answers. We try it and we say, hmm, I like that outcome. That was a good outcome. I feel like everyone benefited from that outcome. You know, that outcome, I would have liked a slightly different outcome. What else can I do? How can I meet this? And we modify our behavior. We modify our intention. We modify our actions. We check the consequences. That's why it's called a discipline. Because we have to just keep doing it. it doesn't, it's, not, it's not a fixed thing. Everything changes. So we have to work on it. So, so we do something and we say, Ooh, I really regret, regret what I did. That's, not, that's really not what I intended. That came out a little unkind. I should have said, you know, a pair of black slacks would probably go better with that shirt. <laughs> so, so what do we do? Do we start, you know, out come the whips and we're, we're, we're beating ourselves over the back, you know? I'm going to do penance now because I did this bad thing and I hurt you and I was unkind? No. 
we say, hmm, I think I could do a better job next time. It isn't about praise or blame. It's about modifying our behavior based on how we see benefit. So, when we fall off the bicycle, we get back on and start pedaling. That's it. We don't tear up the bicycle and throw it away. We don't blame ourselves for weeks. We just get back on the bicycle and pedal. If you decide you're going to be a marathon runner, you put together a a discipline. And you say, okay, every day I'm going to get up, I'm going to do these exercises, I'm going to run this much, I'm going to eat this kind of food, I'm going to to get this amount of sleep. And you, you set up a program and you go off and that's what you do. And then you wake up one morning and you say, I just, I don't want to do this. You have lost it today. You're not going to do this. The next day you get up and you're back on the track. Now, is there blame there? Who's to blame? What's to blame? If you don't follow your regimen, you're not going to be able to run the marathon. (laughs) But it isn't as if, you know, you have to go put yourself in jail because you decided to sleep in this morning. And we do that in our everyday life. We just try every day. How am I, how am I meeting the world? What does this feel like? Am I contracted? Am I meeting these people openly? Am I meeting my life openly? How can I do that more, bet, more easily, more happily? When we think about the the five precepts, they're usually uh, listed in a a very negative way. You know, I I vow to not harm, I vow to not tell lies, I vow to not misuse my sexuality. Everything is kind of a negative thing. So uh, Thich Nhat Hanh put together uh, the same set of precepts and did them in kind of a a more positive way because what we really want to do is cultivate this this sense of ease and compassion in our lives. So, So he recommended it this way. Instead of I refrain from killing, I have a reverence for life. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in the world in my thinking in my way of life. Seeing that harmful actions arise from anger, fear, greed, and intolerance, which in turn come from dualistic and discriminating thinking, I vow to be more open. Rather than I vow not to steal, I intend to practice generosity. In my thinking, speaking, acting. I remember the day that I finally realized that giving money to a charity just didn't make it for me anymore. That I really needed to give of me. I really needed to to involve myself, engage myself in what was happening. It was no longer sufficient to be at it from a remove. That was something that came out of how I felt in the world and how I was meeting in the world. So as we think about these, I'll finish the list for him. Then there is uh, cultivate true love. 
So instead of not misusing sexuality, it's how do I encourage love between couples, between my friends, among the people in my life? How do I encourage love and the integrity of those relationships? The fourth is loving speech and deep listening. Cultivate loving speech and deep listening, where I give you the honor of listening to what you say. That's another part of using speech and verbalization appropriately, is to really listen to what someone is saying. Nourishment and healing. I'm determined not to try to cover up loneliness, anxiety, or other suffering by losing myself in consumption. That broadens the scope a little bit. It takes it out of, well, I'm just not going to get drunk, to how, how do I look at what's happening in my life and not turn it into something else, not deny it, not drink myself into oblivion so that I don't have to look at it, or... Uh, there are many coping mechanisms that can become quite addictive. Ice cream, there's a good one. You know, I feel like I need to defend myself on that ice cream thing. So one of the things I want to say to you is the practice of sila, ethics, can change your life. Don't take it on lightly. It can change your life. There's a, a, a story about uh, Bhutan, and you may have heard this. Bhutan is a small uh, country in Asia, in the South Himalayas, and this country has, instead of measuring their gross national product, they measure their growth, gross happiness product. It's a Buddhist country, and they make a very big deal of running their government uh, on the principle on Buddhist principles, and those are principles of not harming, and they want to measure whether people are happy, and so they send out these surveys every year to measure whether people are happy, and they're they're just wonderfully happy. Everything is just wonderful. However, uh, this year they published a story that when they went out with the survey, one of the things that they were shocked to discover is that 70% of women believed that it was okay to be beaten by their husbands if they fought with them, neglected the children, burnt dinner, refused sex. I mean, really? It was okay to be beaten? In some parts of the country, 90% of the women believed that it was acceptable. In the major city in Bhutan, the largest city, only 50% of the women believed that it was okay, that they deserved to be beaten if their husbands didn't like what they did. And the minister who was in charge of happiness was absolutely shocked. He said, no, no, no. This is a, this is a country that believes in nonviolence. How can this be? This can be because despite their intentions, the culture was such that it was a male-dominated culture that dominated women. And, and calling it Buddhist wasn't good enough to get rid of that. So until they are able to cultivate the cultural condition 
that women do not deserve to be beaten by their husbands. That's going to stay there. So that's the challenge. It isn't just about making the decision. It's about making the decision, checking the action, checking the outcome. Is this of benefit to me? Is this of benefit to you? Is this of benefit to both of us? This is the central question. They're kind of, uh, I read a couple of treatises on happiness because it occurred to me that if we're trying, everybody wants to be happy, right? And happiness is a, a really tricky thing to define. So I looked up on a, a philosophy site, you know, what is happiness? What is happiness? It turns out there are kind of two major ways that people look at happiness. One is the global sense of this is pleasant, I'm happy with this because it's pleasant, my life is pre- pleasant. And, um, and it turned out it wasn't enough just to be pleasant. There was also a need to measure life satisfaction. There had to be a sense of satisfaction also for people to describe themselves as happy. It seems to me this sense of satisfaction has a lot to do with how we establish meaning in our lives, how we interact with the world, that just my pleasure is probably not enough. So there was this famous experiment where they said, this man proposed, suppose I have this machine, and you can plug into this machine, and it will give you whatever you ask for, you know, some desire that you have, like, I want to be a novelist. And you plug into this machine for life, and you write novels. And, the, and you're convinced by this machine that you write novels. Would you sign up for life to have this, to be connected to this machine that gave you what you asked for? It turned out that most people said no. Most people said no. Because really it wasn't enough to write a novel. You want to write a great novel. You want, there, there's this sense of wanting a, a satisfaction that arises out of your own actions, your own intentions. And this ownership for your life is ethics. I own the way I am in the world. I take responsibility for the way I am in the world. And I do that by seeing what is true, not harming, promoting compassion. So those are my thoughts on ethics. And I wonder if you have any comments, questions, objections. You want to stand up and shout? No? Okay. I have something to read to you. This is from the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest uh, teachings of the Buddha, earliest compilations. And there is a section here under uh, miscellaneous, (laughs) which I find a very odd 
chapter title. And here it is. If, by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. Those who seek their own happiness by causing suffering for others are entangled with hostility. From hostility, they are not set free. Those who seek their own happiness by causing suffering for others are entangled with hostility. From hostility, they are not set free. The real benefit of ethics is to not be entangled in suffering. The real benefits of living an ethical life are to free ourselves to be open to our experience so that we can receive our experience, reflect it back, not be entangled by it. We can live with the fact that life and everything in it is impermanent because we don't become invested in whether it's good or bad. It simply is. We see things as they are. We welcome things as they are. And in this honesty, we can behave in a way that allows us to be a benefit to ourselves and to others. May you all find this benefit in your lives. Thank you.